Next week is the beginning of Advent. Now, I know people think it's the Christmas season, but it's actually the Advent season. And a lot of people are going to put up all the Christmas trees and nativity sets, and they're going to have the empty cradle, right? Waiting for the baby boy, Jesus, to come. And we all like that. But it's a good reminder to remember that Jesus isn't just this little boy. He's our king. Now, in America, we actually don't know what to do with this whole thing about the concept of king. We kind of like royalty in a way, truth be told, because, you know, royal weddings. Who watched the last one? You know, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay. No, no one? Oh, all right. But a lot of people are enamored by the royal wedding, all of that. But they don't want to be ruled by a king. As a matter of fact, our country is founded by saying no to King George. As a matter of fact, we often have a uh, comment that we'll use, well, who made you king, right? So we've got this whole thing about king, that it is this kind of a figurehead sort of thing, but not really any true power or might. The idea of true kingship and dominion has been lost. So today, because it is the last Sunday of the church calendar year, And before we get into the Advent season, I thought it would be a good reminder to understand that we serve a king. All right. There we go. Jesus Christ, our king. Now, with him, Christ the king, it's just not this honorary title. It actually speaks to his majesty his love, and his sovereign rule over all. And to help us understand the importance of this title, Christ the King, we're going to take a look at three scripture readings today. There are more aspects of his kingship throughout scripture. We're just going to focus on three. And the three that we're going to focus on will help us understand Jesus as a sovereign king, Jesus as a sacrificial king, and Jesus as the warrior king. As a reminder, there are sermon notes for you if you'd like to follow along, it might help. We're going to start with the book of Daniel. And while there are many different prophecies in the book of Daniel, we're going to focus on chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this is a spectacular vision that Daniel has. It starts off with the clouds of heaven. You've seen those God clouds, right? I'm sure you've all seen them. The clouds are there and the the light is just bursting through and it speaks of God's creation, of his glory. In fact, God used clouds throughout scripture to help people understand his glory. For example, in Exodus 16, 10, it says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And in Exodus 19.9, God said to Moses, I'm going to come you in a dense cloud. So Daniel has this vision. It's a spectacular vision. And 
Within those clouds came one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Who is that? Well, this is a direct reference to Jesus himself. We know that because we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. 76 times in the Gospel, Jesus uses, and it is used for a title for him, Son of Man. It's actually one of his favorite titles. For example, here's one reference where Jesus not only ties in the gospel, but he goes back to Daniel, and actually it's going to go forward to the book of Revelation. So listen, Matthew 24, verse 30. This is Jesus speaking. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man is a messianic title. Jesus the Messiah, a messianic title that is used to express his heavenly origin, his earthly mission, and his glorious future coming. See, when he uses the title Son of Man, it's just not about a person, his human earthly existence. It actually reflects on the heavenly origin of his divi- and divine dignity of Jesus. So the Son of Man reflects on the heavenly origin and the divine dignity of Jesus. So whenever you see Son of Man, and it's used as a title, that's what it's reflecting. So here's this glorious scene, right? Got the clouds, Jesus, the Son of Man, coming on these clouds, and he comes before the Ancient of Days. This is the Heavenly Father, God our Father. And what does God the Father give the Son of Man? Two things. He has given dominion that is everlasting, and he has given a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. It's hard for us. I mean, we can read those words. We kind of go, oh, oh, okay, I got that. But for us to understand and grasp dominion and everlasting is really hard. Dominion means this, a total rule or mastery of all that is in it. A total rule and mastery of all that is in it. As us human beings, we have a little difficulty with this idea of dominion. I mean, as kids, what's our dominion? Well, it's kind of our room, right? (laughs) Stay out. We see that on on rooms. Stay out. Or when you play games, right? When you play checkers, for example, and you get to the other side, what do you say? King me, because I'm king of the hill. And that's another game we play. King of the hill. This is my dominion. I am a ruler of this king of this hill. But when we grow older, well, then what's our dominion? Well, is it our house? It is our workplace. Some businesses like to rule the market. Sometimes we think of political power, geographic power, military might. Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire. Genghis Khan, by the way, had the largest empire ever to date. Huge empire. But when we take a look at those kingdoms, those dominions, are they still around? No, they've all gone. They've all faded away. Rome, for a long, long time, had dominion. It had crumbled. See, 
even those rulers actually had a very, very limited scope of power, of dominion. But with Jesus, his dominion is so great that it's hard for us to put our minds around it. See, he's the creator of everything. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Is there any part of creation that is outside of his dominion? No. Nothing is outside of his dominion. He is sovereign over everything, and his kingdom will not end. Most of us have trouble with that as well, everlasting. You know, we, we think in terms of our human, but if you take a look at our life in the terms of eternity, it would be smaller than I can hold my fingers together. That's how long our life is in terms of eternity. So he has dominion over everything, and it is everlasting. But the question I have for you this morning is, have you acknowledged his dominion over your life? Have you acknowledged his dominion over your life? Or do you try to say, well, Jesus, you have dominion over everything, but this part I want by myself. Have you bowed down before your king and said, all that I have is yours? You see, the truth is, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On the day of judgment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Have you bowed down before your king? So he is our sovereign king. At the same time, he is a sacrificial king. Luke 23, verses 32 through 38. I'm going to read it again to refresh ourselves. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is Christ of, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders knew that Pilate would not charge Jesus simply because of a religious claim. Therefore, they made up this trumped-up charge that he wanted to be king over everything, including Rome, and therefore the peace of Rome and the empire of Rome was at risk. Pilate himself asked if Jesus was a king, and Jesus said nothing to say nothing 
was the same as giving assent to the question that he, yes, indeed, he was king. Therefore, Jesus had, uh, Pilate had the inscription, this is king of the Jews. Now, this incensed the Jews of the day, the Pharisees of the day. They couldn't stand, they couldn't stand that Jesus was being declared king of the Jews. But Pilate famously said, what I have written, I have written. In essence, what I have said, what I have written stands. And so he had the sign up there. But here's the question I want to ask you. If he really was a king, why would he willingly, why would he allow himself to be crucified? See, you have to understand how people viewed crucifixion of the day. We have this written down. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, the Greeks considered the cross foolishness. Now, that word in the Greek foolishness actually is moreno, which roughly corresponds to an English word that we have called moron. Now, we don't use the term moron anymore nowadays because it seems so derogatory, but that's the point. It was derogatory. In essence, they were declaring it to be moronic foolishness. That's how the cross was seen. And why would anybody, why would anybody, if he was a king, allow himself such foolishness? So they hurled insults at him. He saved himself. He cannot save others. Here's my question for you. If Jesus really was the king, the king of kings, why would he allow himself to be crucified? Would you be able to tell someone else that? Would you? Could you explain that to a child? See, I have a, a friend, a few years ago now, um, her son said, why, did, why was he on the cross? Why did he have to die? And my friend said, I don't know. She couldn't answer her own son why Jesus had to die. See, if you don't understand, if you don't understand why he had to die, you don't understand our king. Jesus did not save himself from the cross because he chose to save us from sin. You could tell anyone that. Jesus did not save himself from the cross because he chose to save us from sin. You see, those, Scripture says, we're dead in our sin, and we can't save ourselves. We can't even help in saving ourselves. We need someone to come and save us. Thus, the king of kings would have to die. It was a mission that only he himself could fulfill. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the perfect sacrifice, so the king became the sacrifice for his subjects, which is the world. 
You see, the nails of the cross did not put or keep Jesus on the cross. It was his love for us that put him on the cross and kept him on the cross. Here's what one commentator said. Those who have grasped the true message of the cross understand that it is not weak or foolish. It is instead the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power of God because through the cross, God forever destroyed the kingdom of Satan and broke the grip of sin. It is the wisdom of the cross because God used a tool that neither man nor devil could have ever foreseen to accomplish salvation for his people. You see, our king doesn't just stand on his throne far off looking upon us. He's a personal king. And he came to those who are crying in pain from sin. This is our sacrificial king. Do you know our king? Do you know his love for you? So when Jesus is our sacrificial king, he then will return as a warrior king. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. We are probably not as familiar with this text, so let's hear it again. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that is known by no one but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name on which he is, and the name, and the, I'm going to back up. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. See, this is a picture of Christ the King that we often don't think about. We often think about Jesus the sacrificial King, Jesus the servant King. But here he is the warrior King. And though he's not called out by name, by Jesus, there is no mistaking who this is. This is the Son of Man descending in his glory. And he is no longer riding a donkey into, uh, for Palm Sunday. He is riding a white horse. The white symbolizes victory. The rider is going to be a victorious conqueror. The white horse is a symbol of warfare. And, an identi- and the rider is identified by two names, faithful and true. If you look in Revelation earlier, chapter 3, for the church of Laodicea, he is called and calls himself the faithful and true witness. He is faithful because he is fulfilling everything that God the Father gave him to do. He is true because he is by nature truth. 
faithful and true. And his eyes are fiery, signifying that he sees everything and that there is wrath against those who all, all who oppose him. His diadems are various bands of ribbons symbolizing his overarching supremacy over all of creation. And he comes as a righteous judge. He comes to judge the world and the wrath is against all who oppose him. In verse 15, it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This should not surprise us being in Revelation for it was actually given to us in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63, it says, why is your apparel red and your garments like, like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out the lifeblood, their lifeblood on the earth. It's pretty visceral, graphic language there, isn't it? Do you know that there's a song that you sing? When you sing it, you actually echo Revelation and you echo? Let me read it. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Every time you sing that, you are echoing Isaiah and revelation, and you are saying, Christ the King coming. And when he comes, all evil will be defeated. All evil will be defeated. And it will be defeated by his word. For by his word, he himself, he himself, who, who is this writer called? He is the word of God. It is by the word of God that all evil will be defeated. And when it talks about the sword coming out of his mouth, it is a short two-edged sword that the Romans used in battle. And it was very, very deadly, this instrument. And it symbolizes authority. Therefore, from the mouth of God comes the word of God, which has the authority to cut through everything. The word coming forth from the mouth of Jesus carries out divine judgment to strike down the wicked. This is a Christ the King we don't like for most of us. We kind of go, whoa, don't want that. And quite frankly, for those who oppose Christ, they should fear but for those who are in Christ, there should be no fear. There should be sweet news here. Because when all evil is defeated, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus, our King. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you know your King? Do you bow down and give your life to your King? Maybe you haven't bowed down for a while. Maybe today is a good day to bow down. Do you know your King, the King who went to the cross for you? Why do we talk about the cross all the time? Because it shows the great depth and love. And if you don't understand the cross, if it's just the symbol, if it's just a little piece of jewelry that you wear, you miss the whole understanding of Christ the King, the sacrificial King. And also, do you know Jesus as the righteous judge and the warrior king who triumphs over all evil? This is your king. Do you know your king? Amen.